we all want to encounter God, to experience the transcendent, to have some kind of relationship with the divine. And of course, I understand that there are some people who don't want to encounter God. I think of the atheist philosopher at New York University, Thomas Nagel, who wrote in one of his works, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I understand there are people like that who utterly want to reject not just God, but even the mere idea of God. But I assume that all of us in this room want to encounter God. In this room, we have people who've been believers for decades, who hopefully have grown and matured in their faith over steadfast years of seeing the Lord's faithfulness in their lives and experiencing his grace. In this room, we have others who, who may be even new believers, people who've only recently started this journey, who, who still struggle with reading the scripture and, and the strangeness of it and the difficulty, who, who struggle figuring out the words they're supposed to say in prayer, who struggle to make it to church on Sunday. And in this room, we may even have unbelievers, people who, who don't follow Jesus, haven't placed their faith in him. But even the fact that you are here this morning, if you are an unbeliever, shows, I think, some openness to encountering God. But when we want to encounter God, we tend to want to encounter him on our own terms, the way that we want it to be. I, I know for myself, oftentimes I think that I'd love to hear the voice of God from the heavens, audibly. I, I would love to have a mountaintop experience like Moses, standing with God face to face, such that I came down from the mountain and my face was glowing with the glory of God so that I had to veil myself because of the brilliance. But what we don't often want, what I often don't want, is to encounter God in my struggles. To encounter God even in my suffering and in my striving. Because I don't want to struggle. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to strive. But the truth is, oftentimes, that's exactly where God meets us. And it's so true that we oftentimes encounter God in our struggles. Even our struggles may be ways in which God is devising to encounter us rightly. And as we look here to this chapter, Genesis 32, in which we continue to hear the story of Jacob, we hear that he is one who struggled with God and man. And as a struggler, he encountered God. So first we see that we encounter God's faithfulness when we struggle with other people. Now, Jacob, as we've seen for weeks now, is definitely a person who struggles. He's definitely a person who struggles with other people. He's not necessarily the easiest person to get along with, it seems. He's, he struggled with his brother, as we saw in chapters 25 and 27. He struggled with his father, especially in 27. And he spent chapters in our Bibles, but decades struggling with his father-in-law. Now, in chapter 32, Jacob again struggles with his brother Esau. Jacob has been told by God to go back to his home country after being in Laban's, his father-in-law's land, for 20 years. And so he starts 
on his journey back. And thinking ahead, he is concerned because his brother, who if you remember, he purchased his brother's birthright for a bowl of stew and then deceived his father so that he got his brother's blessing. So he's going back and thinking, I haven't seen my brother in 20 years. And when I left, we weren't on the best of terms. So he sends some messengers with a message to his brother Esau. We see in verses 4 and 5, he tells the servants, Thus says your servant Jacob, this is what they are to tell Esau, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So he tries to get ahead of the possible consequences that may be in his home country, reaching out to his brother. And he gives him this message, expecting, hoping that if he says, brother, I've been gone for 20 years in Laban's country, I've come back in prosperity, can I find favor in your sight? Maybe he can, he can avoid conflict with Esau. Maybe even Esau would just decide to kind of ignore him and leave him on his own. But I think Jacob gets possibly among the worst messages he could expect to get back, which is this. The messengers come back and tell him that Esau is coming to meet him. And with him, he's bringing 400 men. And of course, Jacob's first thought wasn't 400 men, oh boy, a great celebration for my return. I don't know about you, I don't have 400 people who want to come to a party for me. And I'm not Jacob. Jacob hears about 400 men. That's, that's not a party, that's a militia. And so he hears about these men coming and expects the worst. In verse 7, it says, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. See, he's distressed because he's a cheater. That's literally what his name means, Jacob, the cheater. And he cheats, and he lies, and he, and he schemes. And here he has tried to get ahead of the curve to scheme against his brother And it hasn't worked like he wanted because his brother is on his way with what would be a small army. So Jacob, naturally, as Jacob does, starts thinking about how he can orchestrate events for his own purposes. And so he he begins by dividing his, his whole crew into two camps, separating his wives and his children, separating his male and female servants, separating his livestock, So that, this is the reason why, so that if Esau comes and attacks and tries to steal and kill and destroy one of his camps, then at least one of them will get away. Now Jacob is certainly someone who struggles with people. Certainly throughout his life he has struggled with people, whether he was the one who instigated it or just the recipient of it. I get the feeling that Jacob was a character who tended to think that he didn't deserve all that he was getting, but got it, nonetheless he did. But in the midst of struggling with people, Jacob time and time again finds the faithfulness of God. 
He encounters God's faithfulness in the midst of all these things because as he makes mistake after mistake and schemes after schemes, there he finds that God is still keeping his promises. As we see in verse 10, Jacob says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Jacob says, I am not worthy. You gave me a promise in Genesis 28. I took my staff, I crossed the Jordan, I went to Laban's country, and you took me from a man with just a stick in my hands to a man who has two camps. You have been so faithful. And he asked him to be faithful again. Unless we start to think that God's faithfulness is determined by how he makes us, whether we're skilled or talented or beautiful, how he, how he blesses us with riches or victories or any other earthly thing, that's not God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is not determined by the, the material blessings you get in this life. God's faithfulness is determined and shown by how God keeps his promises, the promises he makes. Not the ones you've made and are trying to hold him to, the ones that he makes. And so Jacob thinks that God has been faithful because God promises him in Genesis 28 that his descendants will be like the dust of the earth, spreading north and south and east and west. And so he sees that now that he has two camps, God is being faithful. The promise he made, he is keeping. So he asked him to do it again. And in our lives, we need to be thinking about what promises God has made to us. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of things I wish God would do, and I could see him as faithless when he doesn't, but the problem is he never promised to do some of those things. He never promised to, to let me be a bodybuilder, which I don't know that I want that anyway. He never promised to give me the fanciest car or the biggest house or any of those things, but sometimes we, we create in our minds the life we ought to have, and we place the burden for getting us that life on God. But that's not how God is faithful. God is faithful essentially by his character, his nature. God is faithful because that is who God is. But it's not proven, it's not demonstrated, it's not shown by what material blessings we expect him to give us, and he does. God's faithfulness is shown over our life in which God keeps the promises that he has made. And so we see in the life of Jacob, God is keeping his promises and we, in our lives, encounter God's faithfulness when we struggle with people, when we feel our enemies surround us, when we even feel abandoned by God, when we feel that hope has been lost, when we face the pangs of death, knowing the whole time that God will deliver us from our enemies, that he will never forsake us, that our hope has not been lost that death has been swallowed up in victory, and one day, like Jesus, we will be resurrected. We face the struggles that we have with other people and with outside forces, knowing that God is faithful. And we know it because he has shown time and again that he keeps his promises. And not only does he keep them because he says he's going to do them, but he keeps them because that is who he is. 
And he has the knowledge of the future to know he's not going to break them. And he has the power to actually accomplish them. God is the only one who can be utterly and completely faithful. He is the only one who can keep every promise he ever makes. Human beings might disappoint us making promises that they don't have enough information to actually make at the time. Or making promises that they're going to turn their backs on later. But God does not do that. So as followers of him, our goal is, is just genuinely to see what promises he actually made us and put our hope in the one who makes them. We encounter not just God's faithfulness in this passage, but we encounter God's mercy when we struggle within ourselves. In this passage, we actually see a conflict going on within Jacob through his actions. We see this. We see that there is a conflict between Jacob's sinful nature and his holy calling. See, Jacob lives up to his name in just about every way. Now, my name means candle maker. I've done nothing to live up to that so far. But Jacob lives up to his name because he's a cheater. He's a manipulator and a liar. He begins to plot and scheme as soon as things start to go topsy-turvy. He tries to avoid the consequences of his actions. That's who he is by his sinful heart. But by his holy calling, he is the son of Isaac who was called by God. And as that son, he stops in the midst of his scheming here and prays to God. See, the first thing he does is divide his camps. The second thing he does to try to work the situation is he actually gets his servants together and, and has them drove by drove go to Esau with gifts, with camels, with donkeys, with, with different livestock. And he sends them one after another, but he spaces them out, if you notice that in the passage. He spaces them out so that as each one comes to Esau, he says, who are you and where are you going? And they say, well, these are the livestock of our servant, of your servant, Jacob, and they are a gift to you, his lord, Esau. And he spaces them out so that as soon as Esau goes, wow, what wonderful gifts my brother gave me, again and again and again, he gets another one coming. So Jacob has manipulated the situation to try to give himself the best chance possible of at least half of his camp surviving. But in between those two schemes... Between those two plots, Jacob stops and prays. And in that prayer, he says in verse 11, Please, deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Jacob genuinely fears that his brother will come and take and destroy everything he has everything he's earned over the last 20 years, everything that he has been blessed with by his stolen blessing from his father. And so he prays in this moment. Jacob's struggle, the fact that he doesn't rely fully on the prayer, doesn't discount God's grace in Jacob's life. But instead, it, his sinful nature, his struggle within himself, between his, his sinful flesh and his spirit, that struggle actually makes God's mercy the more astounding. Because it's his sinful flesh that demonstrates the need for God's mercy in the first place. And it's, and it's need in abundance. 
not the need of less of it. See, as we struggle against our sinful desires, we remember that God has drawn close to sinners and provides his mercy and abundance for them. God doesn't withdraw his mercy to those who need mercy. Our need for mercy is because of our sinful flesh. We need mercy because we need mercy. It would not make sense that we become more needful of mercy and God begins to withdraw it. That is a lie from the pits of hell. It is a lie of the devil himself. As we sang this morning in the, in the last song, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. It's possibly the greatest trick the devil's ever pulled. That he makes us feel that when we need God's mercy and grace, we should run from him instead of go to him. That when we fall through sin or trial or temptation, that we would put away our Bibles, that we would stop our prayers, that we would avoid going to church because we don't want to deal with the guilt. But as the song says, upward I look and see him there because the who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. It is the mercy of God that saves, not our consistency in how we live it out. It is the work of Jesus on the cross. So brothers and sisters, do not forget the gospel. Do not forget the gospel when you have those moments of struggling within yourself, struggling against your sin and your Savior. We call this mercy and grace great. It is amazing grace. It is marvelous grace. It is infinite grace. It is matchless grace. It is God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within God's grace that is greater than all our sin. The grace of God is not determined by our faithfulness. It is simply the faithfulness of God to give what he promised, his mercy to those who are in need of mercy. We ought to remember that it wasn't Jacob's plotting that saves him. A little bit of a spoiler for next week. Esau comes to his brother and freely accepts him and refuses the gifts that Jacob sent. But it wasn't those gifts it wasn't those schemes that saved Jacob. It's the fact that he went to the Lord on his knees and prayed that God would deliver him. We ought to remember that it's the intervention of the Lord, not Jacob's schemes and works, that saved. Now, as we look to the second half of this passage, we see that the night before he meets his brother, Jacob, does not sleep very well. I've had a few of those nights myself. Although, I can't say that I've ever woken up with someone starting to wrestle me. Although, I did live in a dorm room for a while, so I'm kind of surprised that didn't happen, to be honest. We encounter, like Jacob, the strength of God when we struggle with angels. So, my whole life, I, I've had to change my mind on this. I, I genuinely, when I was studying this, had to change my mind. Because my whole life, I've either been taught or just picked it up or just believed that in this passage... Jacob wrestles some kind of God appearing. What I mean by that is not, you know, in the New Testament we have God appearing in the person of Jesus. He has made flesh. 
But before that, we see God appear in different ways. Uh, Bible scholars and theologians call them theophanies, God appearings. And in these situations, let, let me give you a couple examples, right? So there's the bush that is on fire but does not burn up that Moses stands before. And we know that that's an appearing of God because the voice that speaks from it actually tells Moses, you're standing on holy ground, take off your shoes. And, and then continues to give him more instruction. Uh, we see that possibly the commander of the Lord's armies in Joshua 6 is a theophany. It again tells Jacob, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. There's other examples where angels appear and people begin to worship them and they say, no, 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 don't worship us, we're not God. So we have several examples of these things. They're not, they're not God becoming human like he does in Jesus, but they are God appearing. And for a long time I just took it that this wrestler in the night was God. And then I saw some commentators mention it as an angel. And, and they mentioned, look at verse 1. They're, they're angels who meet Jacob. That's, that's probably an author possibly setting up the idea that the one who comes and wrestles him in the night is an angel. And that's a fine argument, but it didn't seem like it went far enough to convince me. And then someone pointed this out to me. So here's a principle that will help you, I think, for, for all your life. If the let the Bible interpret the Bible if it does so. So if, if there's a place in the Bible that explains another thing that happens in the Bible, you ought to go with that explanation instead of another one. That just seems simple and clear enough. Well, in Hosea chapter 12, Hosea prophesies about the people of Israel. And he uses Jacob as a figure for Israel. He basically, he basically says he's talking about the nation of Israel and what's going on with them, but he uses the story of Jacob to explain it. So that in Hosea chapter 12, starting in the second half of verse 2, we see that it says, The Lord will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. Now in verse 4, He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Now, there seems to be two possible explanations of the Hosea passage. One, either somehow Jacob strove or wrestled or struggled with an angel in a story that's not recorded in our Bibles, or it's referring to the story in Genesis chapter 32. And the fact that it uses the same exact language of chapter 32, that Jacob prevailed, as it says in Genesis 32 verse 28, and as it says in Hosea chapter 12 verse 4, to me indicates that it is referring to the same event. That does not discount in verse 3 that he wrestled or struggled or strove with God. It just adds another dimension that in this wrestling match, it was an angel doing the work of God, which isn't unusual. God sends angels to do work all the time. One example I can think of very readily in fact, an example where God uses an angel to show his strength and power is in the Exodus when the angel of death appears and the firstborn sons of Egypt die. So, I've changed my, my opinion on this. Lest anyone say that I'm too stubborn to ever do so, I did change my opinion on this, that it is an angel that Jacob wrestles, or as some of you would say, wrestles. Now, in verse 25, it says... When the, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip 
was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. I, I used to have a friend, again, with the assumption that this was God that was wrestling him, who said, what we learn from Genesis 32 is that God plays dirty. But actually, if this is an angel, it is an angel still showing God's strength. Now, what's interesting isn't just that his hip goes out of joint, but that he walks with a limp permanently. He walks away from this day with a limp, and he continues to walk with a limp, such that they say they no longer eat that part of the thigh on an animal that they kill because it was the same as where his hip went out of joint. It's a permanent reminder for Jacob and Israel of Jacob's weakness and of God's strength. God is so powerful that he can, by just a touch, put someone's hip out of joint, but also by a touch or a word, heal a paralyzed man. God is so powerful that with a word, he can create the entire universe out of nothing. He's so powerful that on the last day, he will speak and just one word will fail the accuser, the enemy. This, this reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9-10, through 10, when Paul says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In our weakness, God is shown to be strong. And it's not just our weakness. Some people saw Jesus hanging on the cross and mocked him, looking at this weak man who had wandered around, claiming he was God and finally getting his just desserts. And there they stood mocking and accusing him. And then he died. He died. They all seemed vindicated. What we wanted happened. In fact, they even were surprised that he died so early. Have you ever thought about the fact that the disciples who were following Jesus, one, they had never got a clue on what was going to happen. So they spent the next day, all of Saturday, and even into Sunday, just mourning Jesus, not expecting him to come back, not really sure what just happened. It looked like weakness, but in it we see God's strength as Jesus is victorious over death itself, over evil and sin. In that moment of weakness, God is shown to be strong. And in our weaknesses, God is strong. As one commentator said, For we know that the strength of God is made perfect in our weakness, in order that our exaltation may be joined with humility. For if our strength remained entire, and there were no injury or dislocation produced, immediately the flesh would become arrogant, and we should forget that we conquered by the help of God, not by our own work, not by our scheming or plotting, but even when we struggle, struggle against the angels, we encounter God's strength. Now, as we think about this today, 
You may be thinking, okay, but how do we encounter God? How do we encounter his strength with a struggle against the angels? You may be thinking, I'm not very aware of struggling with any angels in my life. Fair enough. But if we think about the role of an angel, especially in Genesis 32, angels were messengers. In the Greek, the word for angel that we get the word from, literally angelos, means messenger. Think about the messengers God may be putting in your life for all the various reasons he might have. People, people hinting, people saying, people pushing you in the right direction. In this situation, the first thing that the angel was trying to teach Jacob, even by the wrestling, was that he should not expect everything to be perfect from here on out. That he should expect more trials and struggles. See, God made a promise to Jacob in Genesis 28, and it would be easy for Jacob to think that his returning and entering the promised land was an end to his struggles, that he would finally have peace, that he would have calm and a good life. Like a soldier who had fulfilled his terms of service coming home, he can finally, in his mind, return and rest with all the blessings promised him by God. But instead, Jacob is called, like we are today, to always be prepared for trials and temptations. The second thing, the second thing that it seems that, that this encounter was meant to teach Jacob, the message he was supposed to get, is that the one who allows the struggle, that is God, does so in order to bless those who cling to the Lord as the only source of salvation. The one who allows the struggle does so in order to bless those who cling to the Lord as the only source of salvation. I think of the words of Peter. He said, where are we to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. If we cling to the Lord, cling to him, hold him, it says that he would not let him go. We might just receive the blessing of God as those who accept and recognize that the only way to salvation is the Lord. The only way to salvation is through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is those who are so understanding of that and so willing to hold on that he blesses as those who are saved. Finally, we encounter God's heart when we struggle with him. Now Jacob, after this encounter with what again I'm saying is the angel, but it says in the text, the man. After this encounter, Jacob names the place Peniel, which means the face of God. And he says, that was verse 30, and he says he names it this because he saw God face to face. Again, you might be starting to think, well, isn't that a really good argument for why he was encountering God himself there? But one, we need to rec recognize that seeing God face to face is a phrase used throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, that at the very least means that he saw God in an unusual and extraordinary way. And before you think I'm just making that up, uh, next week you'll see in the next chapter that Jacob faces Esau. This is chapter 33, verse 10 for anyone who wants to check it out. But he sees Esau and he says that seeing Esau's face is like seeing the face of God. So it may not be 
that Jacob thinks this is a place where he literally saw the face of God, but at the very least, he sees this encounter as one fueled with God's presence. That the strength that touched him was the strength of God, not just some mere angel, some mere messenger. And in this encounter, in this encounter, Jacob finds the heart of God, for God renames him. He says, you'll not just be Jacob the cheater, but you will be Israel, the one who wrestles, who struggles, who strives with God. Not only does that define Jacob's life in the past very well, but it defines a lot of his future and the future of his children. And guess what, guys and girls? It's us. It defines a lot of our lives as we struggle with God. But the thing we need and the thing that is revealed when we struggle with him is that we need God's heart and his love. And the way we see that is by finding an Israel who is not the one who strives with God or struggles with God, but as the word, can, Israel can also mean one who is God who strives for us. It can mean either the one who is str- struggles against God or the God who struggles. And as we look to the New Testament, we see a new and true and better Israel Not one who struggles against God, but one who never struggles with God and is at peace with God. One who instead is struggled against by the world. We see Jesus Christ, the God who struggles for us. Maybe there's no better summary of the heart of God, the gospel, than John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But it's not, it's not in the context of us getting better that the son is sent. In Romans 5.8 it clearly says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. While we still struggled against God, God came and died for us in Jesus. When we struggle with God, when we fight him, when we put our heart's desires before his, when we prioritize separating our camps instead of praying to our Lord, he still brings with his heart a love for us, a love for us that sends his son to live a perfect life and die a sinner's death that he did not deserve for us. Makes me think throughout all the fears and the struggles that we have of the hymn in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. When fears are stilled and when striving cease, 
when all things are made new, when the heights of love that we cannot pass and the depths of his peace come to us, we find that there is the love of Christ. And it is Jesus himself in which we build the foundation of our lives. It is the only way forward. So we should not fear the struggles of this life. We should not fear those who can kill the body but the one who can destroy the soul. We should not let the struggles of this life push us away from God, but instead recognize that in those struggles we encounter God. In those struggles we find Jesus. We find our Savior and Lord who one day we will spend an eternity with fully and finally. The glory of God shone through the sun as we have seen it by the Spirit all along. We will stand with God and we will encounter him in a way we never have before. Like Jacob, we encounter God even in our struggles. So brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning... Don't forsake the gospel. Don't forget what Christ has done. Don't, don't let a day go by that you don't recognize that God's faithfulness, his mercy, his strength, his very heart have drawn to you. And that is the way to him. And if you're not a believer this morning, I'd invite you, if you are struggling or if you find yourself in struggles, whether they're struggles caused by forces that you cannot control or within yourself, whether they're, they're you fighting a message from God or fighting God himself, don't neglect the opportunity you have to encounter God in your struggles. Let's pray.